News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, pain at the pump when you go to fill up, pain at the grocery store to buy food. We can't escape higher prices. They are everywhere. And what many can't help but notice is the companies that are charging these higher prices are still making good profits, in some cases, really big profits. So we've heard that the federal NDP wants to launch a probe into grocery store profits to see if there's any price gouging going on. But to talk more about this, I'm joined now by our guest, Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director at the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Professor at Dalhousie University. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Is this a tough time for grocery store companies, do you think? Uh, from a PR perspective, absolutely. Uh, you just go on Twitter for uh, a while, and uh, everyone is accusing them of, of gouging consumers. Uh, of course, we've we've done the math. We've looked at uh, financial statements in the last five years, and there's no evidence of, of gouging. Uh, ratios related to profitability, gross margins are the same the last five years. In fact, uh, they... In some cases, they did make some more money, but uh, higher revenues actually came from, from pharmacy chains, not, not food items. So, um, but still, it doesn't matter. Uh, people are still have that perception that uh, grocers actually are, are profiteering, and that's a problem for them. It is a problem for them. So what you're saying is that if you've looked at financial statements for the last five years, they haven't been losing money. So even with all the inflation pressures on our budgets, they've still protected whatever profit margins they've had. Is that right? Well, the cost uh, to distribute and retail food uh, it has gone up, obviously. So margins have remained somewhat the same. They had to raise prices, right. basically. And and frankly, I mean, mo- most grocers have they had to beat the market when when the food inflation is at ten percent. You have no idea uh, how you how to protect your margins, so you kind of have to kind of forecast and, and and play with the market a little bit more. And that's kind of the thing that most people can't appreciate as consumers, really. Okay, so you feel like they really had to probably juggle. Do you think sometimes the profits perhaps were a little bit unexpected? A little. I mean, because of the fact that you kind of have to beat the market. So when, when you're negotiating prices with your suppliers, uh, it's been extremely difficult for all parties to agree on the list price for several months. Listen, I mean, oh, per, it, let's, let, what, what happens if the food inflation rate actually drops by 5%? So there's a lot of things that do happen within the supply chain that is really been very difficult. And, uh, and frankly, it hasn't been easy for suppliers either, by the way. Yeah. Okay. So what do you see happening yeah. now, Sylvan? Are things starting to settle down or is it still quite uneven in the market? I think uh, things are, are calming down. I know numbers are, are, are pointing in a different direction, but I actually do think the last three months uh, our, our food inflation rate is, uh, has not exceeded 10% yet. Uh, and within the G7, we actually have the third lowest uh, food inflation rate right now. Uh, only Japan and France have a lower food inflation rate. So, and, and the cost to transport food across North America, even on water, it's costing uh, about 40 to 50% less. 
So eventually this will catch up to us. It will be the reverse of what we've seen in 2020 and 2021. So I'm actually quite optimistic, uh, even though uh, we are expecting um, a few more months of, of high digits. But again, I think things are, are a little bit more predictable than just a few months ago. So you said, though, this is a bit of a PR problem for the grocery store companies, you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So oh, the- yeah. And, and that's not going to go away. And, and what we are seeing around the world, in fact, Canada is the only G7 country uh, without a grocer, which has actually frozen, voluntarily frozen prices for specific staples, uh, little uh, in the U.S., uh, we've seen Carrefour, Leclerc, Weiss in Germany. All of these grocers have decided to show empathy towards consumers and freeze prices for uh, for a handful of products we buy every single day just to show that they have a heart. And, and, and I think it may actually be an option for grocers in Canada to consider. Right. And you're, that's also good um, PR, though, isn't it? Like that's a good marketing campaign, too, to even put that message out there. So you're right, though, but no. Why hasn't any Canadian grocer done this? <laughs> to be to be perfectly honest with you, when you compare uh, promotions and discounts in Canada, there, there's not a whole lot of creativity, really. When you go to Australia, for example, in Europe, uh, grocers tend to be a little bit more creative. Uh, this is one example. I mean, another example I've seen is that you can actually buy, I don't know, milk and some of that. Uh, some proceeds are given to farmers directly and uh, to support farmers who are dealing with droughts and extra costs. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that I've, I've seen around the world that in Canada, you don't really see a whole lot. The only thing that really happens in Canada are lost leaders, you know, selling a product at a loss to yeah. get you in there, get you in the store or volume discounts Buy four lemons for the price of three. That's basically <laughs> what's going on in Canada. That is, you're right. So really then, part of this problem then, if this is a, a public relations problem for the grocery store companies, it's kind of self-inflicted, it sounds like, from the way you're describing. Yeah, and I've heard from the Retail Council of Canada and the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers, and, 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 and both of them have pushed back on this idea of voluntary freezing food prices. But as I was, there was an op-ed in Toronto Star on Friday talking about this, and honestly, uh, I don't think they understand what we're trying to propose here. We're just proposing it's very simple to do. You just renegotiate with your vendors on a few products. And, and frankly, in Europe, what they're doing is to actually freeze prices on private, on private labels, a brand owned by the store. So it's very easy to do. Yeah, and not only that, that's a, that would seem to me to be a win-win for the company. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm a bit surprised it hasn't happened yet, but uh, I mean, there's some pushback and I just think, I think the problem in Canada is this grocers, if they decide to do it, uh, it's, it, it's like they would actually admit guilt. They would admit that there was profiteering going on, which I don't agree with. Right. It's also a bit clubby, right? Small group of companies that do this in Canada. No, that's not a problem, Simi, is it? <laughs> I hear your sarcasm, Sylvain. I hear that. There. Even early in the morning. <laughs> well, Sylvain, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. All right, take care. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. So you're tired of high gas prices. I am with you on that. Maybe you want an electric vehicle or a hybrid. 
Well, good luck with that. What are your chances of finding one? So we were talking about this on the show last week, as you may recall, and I got an email from our next guest, someone who specializes in EVs at an Abbotsford car dealership. And I thought, well, let's get this information straight from the source. So Robert Klaus, sales manager at VW Abbotsford, joins us now. Good morning, Robert. Morning, Simi. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Let me ask you this. How many calls a day do you get from people saying, I would like to buy an EV or a hybrid? Well, um, it does vary, but I'm saying anywhere between 30 to 100 phone calls a day. And what do you tell them? So, um, you know, it's exciting times. It's just a little bit confusing right now at the moment of where the electric market is going especially with the supply. Um, phone calls that I received a year ago, I said I would tell people, you know, I have really no idea when the next vehicles are coming in. I put you on the list. As soon as I know, I will notify you. Now it's a little bit more exciting because our factories out of uh, Tennessee are opening up and getting ramped up. So we're actually starting to take orders again. And, um, you know, news travels fast, and my phone is literally ringing off the hook in order to get those orders in as soon as possible. And uh, hopefully receiving a car in the next year, two, year and a half. Okay, wait a minute. So if I came in and ordered one today, I wouldn't get that car for a year or a year and a half? Yes, that's correct. And is that the case for electric vehicles? Like you work for one particular brand, but is that the case for electric vehicles in all brands right now? Okay, so I don't want to speak, you know, about all of the other manufacturers, because uh, obviously I'm involved with my, my own brand, VW, and uh, we're in constant contact with Volkswagen Canada and Volkswagen US, and they are updating us on pretty much a weekly basis of what's going on. But, you know, you speak within the business, and you have friends at other car dealerships, and they are partly saying, you know, if you want to have an AV right now, any particular model, it's up to three years of a wait. Up to three years of a wait. So, Robert, why is this? Is it just that demand outstripped what was available? Um, yes. Um, now, one of the crises that we went through at the beginning of the year was obviously the uh, Ukraine war, the Ukraine crisis that actually shut down um, large portions of European car manufacturers' productions as well as some of the Asian producers. So we are pretty much missing an entire production year right now as it stands. So the backlog of demand is huge, and that now has to be worked through. And obviously, you know, if you're looking at California just announcing we need 2 million electric vehicles by the year 2025, and, you know, the demand is just so big for North America that it just it's going to take a long time to get through. The semiconductor crisis is not over yet. And, um, you know, global supply chain issues, there's just a lot of variables that uh, we didn't take into account two years ago, I guess. So do the rebates still make a difference? Like, is that one of the reasons why or is it, do you think, high gas prices? Well, it's both. Um, the, the rebates are obviously um, very attractive for buyers. The one thing is right now, the, the vehicles are just not here. So it's uh, not costing the government a whole lot of money at the moment. Um, gas prices, you see, as soon as we hit that magic $2 per liter, the phone calls ramp up and people are looking for EVs, used EVs. They're willing to overpay for electric vehicles if they're available. And, um, yeah, I think that that's not going to change for the foreseeable future. So you're saying even for like a used electric vehicle, people are willing to pay what, any amount of money to get a hold of one at this point? 
Not any amount of money, but yeah, there are some uh, ridiculous cases that you can actually uh, research also yourself where uh, uh, an electric vehicle that would be brand new for $60,000, 5,000 kilometers later on the odometer sells all of a sudden for eighty-five, and that without any rebates. So the demand is huge on those vehicles. And, you know, we even have electric vehicles in stock that are, are pre-owned and that are more expensive than they were when you could buy them new but the government has uh, you know uh, also the tax rebate on on pre-owned electric vehicles so you're not paying the pst or the luxury tax on top of those cars it's only subject to five percent gst what makes it also attractive to get actually into a pre-owned electric vehicle okay so then robert what how would you compare that to sales of gas vehicles then like uh, like is there still a big demand for ga- brand new gas vehicles too yes there is but the demand has changed um where we could see roughly a year and a half where people were looking for trucks um, that has completely shifted. People are actually trying to sell their trucks and get into more fuel-efficient fuel cars. Um, again, for the electric market, there's hardly any hybrids, plug-in hybrids, or electric vehicles on the market that are pre-owned. And if they're on the market, then they're very expensive. So people are still forced to buy gasoline cars because we need to, we need to drive. Um, but it's uh, people are more looking for fuel-efficient sedans and smaller compact SUVs than going into big trucks and vehicles with big engines and high displacement. Right. Did you notice that change too, that when the gas prices went above $2 a litre, people were like, all of a sudden, I don't want the truck anymore. Show me something with, that's more fuel-efficient? 100%. And uh, we had lots of customers coming in, please take my truck and, and put me into a Volkswagen Jetta, because I don't want to pay $20 uh, to uh, use 20, 20 liters on 100 kilometers. And uh, it's just unaffordable. I actually, from one of my longtime clients, I received a text message who's been on my wait list now for a year and a half for an ID4, texted me and says, these gas prices are killing us. Can you please get us a car? And obviously that's said in irony because it's out of my hands. But I, I get phone calls, comments, text messages, emails on a daily basis. Uh, are car makers responding to this, uh, Robert? Is this going to be something that you think lasts? Well, it's the future. Until there is not a new technology, um, EV will be the future. You're going to see that gas engines will phase out. Um, there are global um, goals set by different countries to go fully EV and fully electric, including Canada by a certain date, and that we're expecting that 90% of car sales by, by um, 2030 will be fully electric. Um, again, the demand is huge, and I don't think that we really realize how many electric vehicles we, we need. The incentives are definitely a big help, and I hope that they, they stay. We need it, um, but it's going to be a while until we really get enough vehicles to supply the demand. Wow, that is just crazy. Robert, I can't appreciate I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on to explain this to us this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. We know times are tough out there for so many people. You're having to cut back everywhere to, you know, fill up your vehicle with gas if you can, or maybe you're cutting back on your grocery budget. That is certainly the case for a lot of groups. Food banks are also telling us that apparently students, like international students, 
are facing a particularly high burden when it comes to dealing with inflation because there's all sorts of exacerbating factors that they have to deal with too. Fixed budget rules that really limit how much work that they can do and get paid for. And then there's the exchange rates and more. One Vancouver food bank says that three quarters of the students on its books are international students. Meanwhile, tuition fees are going up and more. Let's talk more about what is going on at food banks right now. Cynthia Bolter joins us now, the Chief Operating Officer of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Cynthia, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. We appreciate the coverage. Well, let's talk about what's going on at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. What kind of increases, what kind of changes have you seen the last few months? Honestly, unlike anything we have seen before, we are setting records virtually every month. Um, You know, six months ago, we were setting records every quarter, Pretty much every month now, um, we signed up over 7,700 new clients last year. We are covering about 13,000 people a month. And in the last three months, we have signed up about 1,000 new clients each month. So honestly, it's just staggering. Um, We also support community agencies. We support about 120 community agencies that do amazing work in the community and use the food we give them for all of their food programming. Um, We have 27 new ones waiting to sign on in our next cycle. Um, So we're seeing it right now from from all sides. And as you said, um, international students, that is one of the top three reasons that uh, we are seeing in terms of why people are signing up with the food bank right now. Yeah, are you seeing a difference in who is signing up? Who is, you said international students too, but is there something different about the demographics of people who are coming to you for help? I think the, you know, international students have been one of our demographics for years, but it's absolutely, uh, I would say, ballooned really since the pandemic uh, hit. And, um Work has been restricted for this particular community. Certainly cost of living is one of the top three reasons, and that might just be in general. Uh, I know, you know, for myself, uh, gas, just for example, is an easy thing to measure in terms of the the increase. Uh, And then the other um, demographic that is also um, not new but has grown is uh, people new to Canada. So people here, you know, uh, less than a year, for example, or within two years, um, these people are really struggling and they need some help to to get started. We've certainly seen, um, you know, recently a number of Ukrainian refugees, for example, um, seeking our support. So if you have so many more people, Cynthia, signing up for your services, do you have the ability to serve them all? For now, we are just starting to have those conversations around what what is the ceiling. We've heard from um, several of our community agencies that they are either no no longer accepting new clients, they have stopped um, you know registration, or um, in a in a couple of cases they're actually cutting back on the people they serve and sending people our way. So we have amazing donors both on the financial side as well as on the industry side, so the food donations that come in from farmers and growers and producers. Um, What our need is right now is we actually have to expand in terms of refrigeration. We put out 8 million million pounds of food into the community last year, 7 million the year before, 5 million before that. 
It's going to be more this year, but we need to have more refrigeration so that we can store the fresh food that comes in, keep it fresh, and get it out into our communities. So it sounds like donations are still coming in then. So that's a good thing. It is a good thing. We are super, super grateful. Um, We have really built our monthly donor base. And for any charity, monthly donors are absolutely gold because you can count on that funding coming in month after month and it really helps you budget Um, and we're just you know we're trying to tell the story so that our donors understand where their uh, donations are going who they're impacting we really believe that's important Um, and the generosity out there as we talk to people about the needs the generosity is continuing and we just want to keep that top of mind for people because honestly um, none of us really see an end to this. I mean, back in 2008 uh, with the financial crash, the um, food bank usage went up about 20% across the country. It's never dipped. Uh, and I, I don't know what to expect from the increases we're seeing with this particular crisis that we're in. Oh, my goodness. Uh, what about, are you seeing a lot of families as well coming to the food bank? We are. It's really interesting. Uh, So we serve four different municipalities, uh, well, five, I guess, the North Shore, which is West Van and and North Van, New Westminster, Burnaby, and Vancouver. And in Vancouver and on the North Shore, we see about uh, half of our clients um, being single um, and more seniors. And then in Burnaby and New Westminster, that's where we see a higher percentage of families. And New Westminster has our largest families. So um, yes, we are, we're seeing an increase, honestly, across every demographic. But as a whole, as we look to our, our entire client base, the number of seniors has slipped a bit, a few percentage points, and the number of children has increased. So we're up to about 26, 28% children right now. And we used to be at the 24, 25% mark. Oh boy. So how can people help, Cynthia? They can help by donating online or becoming a monthly donor. Our website is foodbank.bc.ca. We work super hard to stretch our donors' dollars. Our buying power averages two to one, but on produce, and 60% of the food that we provide to people is fresh. So that's dairy and um, other proteins and uh, produce. So when we buy produce, for example, that buying power can be six to one. Seven to one, eight to one. So um, that really helps us, and uh, we all our food is menu planned, so we know exactly what we need to buy and what we want to buy. So that is the the best way to help. And the other way is um, volunteering. Uh, right now, we continue to uh, look for groups. We're seeing a lot more corporate groups since the pandemic sign up to volunteer, which is amazing. In our Vancouver location alone, for example, we need about 25 volunteers every single day just to to do what we do. We are seeing about 900 feet through the door uh, almost every day in Vancouver. So it's it's pretty busy. All right. So people can help out any way they can. Cynthia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Rogers Arena is buzzing tonight. But it has a lot of people dreaming that the NBA might come back to Vancouver permanently. I don't want to get arrested tonight. Bring back the NBA. Am I right? Am I right? I was just six years old when the Grizzlies came to Vancouver, and I was completely obsessed with the team. I just love watching them win or lose. 
which was a good thing because they lost a lot. Oh, they sure did. That is the voice of Kat Jamie, the award-winning Filipino-Canadian filmmaker based right here in Vancouver. She has made a series of documentaries about the Vancouver Grizzlies. The latest is called The Grizzly Truth. We spoke with her uh, late last week. This is the film that's about how the Vancouver Grizzlies very painfully left town for Memphis. Movie had its premiere just this past weekend. And this wasn't just an ordinary premiere either because a number of former Vancouver Grizzlies Grizzlies players were back in town to watch this movie and not just any former players either but also former NBA all-star Steve Francis now any Grizzlies fan knows Steve Francis is notorious in this city for not wanting to play here our producer Jason has caught up with Kat Jamie and Steve Francis and had a chance to talk with them Jason I'm so jealous how was it It was fun. It was very fun. Uh, Steve Francis is a very nice guy. And fun fact, actually, (laughs) when he did the interview, he was decked out in Vancouver Grizzlies gear. So that was great to see. Are you kidding me? For a guy who never actually played a game here, who didn't want to show up here, you're (laughs) telling me he was wearing Vancouver Grizzlies gear? From head to toe, all Grizzlies gear. I don't know how I feel about this. All right. Tell me more about this. So Steve Francis, you know, former NBA basketball superstar for the Houston Rockets, three-time All-Star. So I caught up with him, and this is what he's doing now. He's he's helping at-risk youth with the Steve Francis Foundation, and he's also watching his son play high school basketball. At the same time, I was able to kickstart my foundation uh, since 1999. And uh, 2004, we took it to another level uh, with including scholarships for, you know, inner city youth who couldn't help it. Uh, One thing that we looked at was how much money their parents made a year. Um, And that determined who we, you know, really wanted to go get. You got kids with 4.0 GPAs who can't have a computer, you know, who can't get close to accessible things. Like, you know, I'm pretty sure here in Canada, it's easy to get around that. But, you know, where I'm from, it wasn't that easy and it still isn't. Well, he's developing into a basketball player. Uh, His first love is baseball and which... You know, uh, I spent a lot of time at Astros games over the last six, seven, eight years. Uh, just, you know, going along with what he loved, his passion is that basketball came up as he got a little bit older. So uh, when he was born, it wasn't like, hey, you're going to go play basketball. I'm not that type of guy or parent who will influence my past career with things like this to prevent from him having to go through things like this. All right. So that is Steve Francis, our producer, Jason Manas, was talking to him I need to know this, Jason. What it really comes down to is, does he regret not coming here and playing for the Grizzlies? Was there anything that we could have done to make that situation better? Well, after watching the film, Simi, and I don't want to get into spoilers, but again, there was a multitude of reasons as to why he didn't want to play for Vancouver. I did get a chance to ask Steve if looking back, if he would have played for the team and if the Grizzlies could have saved the relationship. This is what he said. You never know. Uh, if there's a definite answer as far as, you know, uh, you know, respectability on, you know, all the sides. But, uh, you know, it, it was so quick and so fast for a young kid like me who was a natural leader, you know, who was a natural point guard and, you know, who wanted to get up and down the court. And I didn't think that, pres- that, that wouldn't have been available, available for me at that period of time. Uh, you know, at, now I'm 45. I, I definitely know. But at 22, I had no no idea what was involved with owners, general managers, you know, all those things. So uh, now, um, from which angle, as a executive or as if I was 22 to play? So I would be doing the same thing if, you know, if they had a great guard in front of me, it would have been the same answer. 
Okay, that's interesting. So, I mean, I do feel like things could have... He didn't know. Watching the movie, I was struck as well by hearing how he'd never really been outside of his city. I think he grew up in Houston, right? And nobody yeah. explained to him and his all his entourage, everybody around him were family members who also had not been in the NBA or been around. So nobody really explained to him how the business works. No, and like he was worried about the taxes, for one. He didn't want his salary to be taxed. He was worried about his family. There was a multitude of reasons as why Steve Francis did not want to play for us. So for Vancouver fans who are thinking, oh, this guy just didn't like Vancouver, that is not true, and you have to watch the film to check that out. I guess. I'm still, I still feel very reluctant. Okay, so he agreed to this. Why did he agree to do this? Why was he even here? So he was actually a big part in the film, like I uh, mentioned. So it was no surprise that he would attend the premiere. Now, why he participated, it was a mix of mutual interest on his part. And you just have to hear what Kat, the director, did to get him to do the documentary. Here it is. You know, when she approached me, it was more of a a mutual type of thing. I want to understand why you didn't, you know, why you decided not to go to Vancouver. And that was the beginning of the conversation. We led to where we are today. Well, I can tell you about Kat Passion. I never said this, but... It was 5,000 people when she came into my autograph session. And out of that, like you said, why does she always wear Vancouver? You have to be tough to walk in the Toyota Center with Vancouver Grizzly gears on, talking to me. So I noticed that. Um, and like I said, I didn't want to, you know, uh, deter her or even my son. So it, it was a great time to speak. So she's brave. He was like, okay, she's brave. She's brave. That was probably one of my favorite parts of that interview because Steve Francis was so shocked by Kat would just walk into, like, walk into this, his building right to his face wearing full decked out Grizzlies gear. And no, she wears Grizzlies gear all everywhere. The time. Yes. All the time. So that was a pretty funny part in the, um, in the interview. Now, I was able to catch up with Kat as well, Simi, and she told us last week that this film took a decade to produce. So I asked her what she thought was the hardest part, and it's no surprise that this is what she said. Tracking down all the players. That was, that was, uh, that was a really um, tall task, especially when I first started. You know, I'd say back in 2016 when I had no connections to the NBA. Um, Big Country was like my first... Like Big Country, you know, I give him credit. He really opened the door for me and really helped my career, um, you know, as a filmmaker and childhood fan. Um, and he, you know, once I got Big Country, it was it was way easier because when I, you know, got in touch with Mike Bibby, it was like, you know, Bryant's inviting me to his house and, you know, here's a film that we made with him. And then once Mike Bibby was on board, then that's how I got Sharif on board because I was like, I got, you know, we filmed this Big Country. Mike said, yes, do you want to be a part of it? And then Sharif was in. Um, and then once you kind of start, uh, you know, getting people on your team, it's, it's, you know, it's easier to convince the next person. But of course, with Steve, I didn't have any connection to Steve. Um, and so uh, that required me to actually fly to Houston and do my, my pitch in, uh, live <laughs> in front of him. That was a real walk down memory lane there, Jason, just hearing her talk about all those people, big country, she, who she also tracked down in a previous yep. movie, Sharif Abdur-Rahim, Mike Bibby, like... The legends. Those were the... <laughs> the legends.
<laughs> the Grizzlies legends, I guess. Okay, so we both had some access to this movie and we've been able to watch it. What stood out to you? What was your favorite part? Well, Simi, if there's one part that one part that really spoke to me was when Kat got into her Filipino heritage. Kat, as mentioned in the intro, is a Filipino Canadian, just like myself. And so, so to see her not only be successful in making films, but also showcase Filipinos through a documentary about a former NBA team was really inspiring. I actually got to ask her about that, and here it is. Really, you know, I actually that's one of the most the things that I'm most excited to share about the film is. Um, the personal aspect of my story that I share, um, what it was like growing up as, as a second generation Canadian and how the Grizzlies really helped uh, shape my identity. Um, and I don't think like, you know, I, I'm excited for other other second generation uh, Canadians to watch this film and especially for Filipinos because we got to highlight, you know, the love of basketball and our culture. And I'm really proud that that's part of this story. Um, but it was, yeah, it, it, it meant a lot. And I, I immediately knew, because with Finding Big Country, obviously there was a personal aspect to that story that I shared. And I, when I was making this film and we had early discussions with my, my team, my, my creative team about, okay, what, how can we go deep with this film? I already knew instantly. I was like, yeah, I know how to, I know how to tell this story and what I want to share um, and how it could be sort of, um, you know, <clears throat> similar, not, not exactly what we did with Finding Big Country, but to hit that personal note in this film it is so cool it was a lot of fun so did you get the sense that steve francis was like yeah i, I might have done things some di- differently he could have yeah i think he looking back at it yeah i think he would have liked to play for the grizzlies but again i don't think like basketball wise he would have fit into the vancouver grizzlies i mean it worked out for him he was a three-time all-star for the houston rockets now i did ask him if if he would if if vancouver deserves another basketball team he didn't really answer that part but I think in his heart, he knows the passion of Vancouver basketball fans is we want a basketball team. And I think we do deserve a new NBA team. I can't believe he was sitting there wearing Vancouver Grizzlies merchandise, actually. <laughs> Jason, <laughs> thank you for that story. Thanks, Simi. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.